Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Our Dappled World, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 15th, 2006. A little after 6 a.m. on Monday, January 2nd, 2006, Two carts of miners entered the Sago Mine in West Virginia to begin the first shift after the long holiday weekend at the New Year. A few minutes later, though, an explosion trapped 13 miners in the first cart two miles into the mine and 300 feet underground. As the entire country held its collective breath and the Appalachian community prayed, Late Tuesday night on January 3rd, national news services reported that 12 of the 13 miners had been found alive. Euphoria erupted, horns blared, sirens screamed, and church bells pierced the night at Sago Baptist Church, where Governor George Manchin proclaimed a miracle. But in a cruel twist of fate and miscommunication, only three hours later, the media reversed its report. Twelve miners were dead, and one was alive. Not twelve alive, and one dead. Pandemonium followed the announcement. When the pastor urged families to look to God for help, a man in the crowd shouted, What the hell do you mean? What can God do for us now? A distraught woman, her face contorted with agony, cried, Where is God when we need him? Is he really there? Those anguished cries mirror Job's bitter complaint in the Old Testament reading for this week from Job chapter 23. Job longs to plead with God, to state his case before him, and to protest his unjust suffering. He knows that God is righteous and that God would hear the cry of an innocent person. But there's a problem. He can't find God and he doesn't know where to look for him. Job says that he searches up, down, left and right, but God feels absent and he feels abandoned. We read in Job chapter 23 verses 8 and 9, If I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Using his spiritual compass to detect some hint of divine activity, Job can't determine the true north of God's presence in human history. In his new book by the title, God's Universe, The Harvard astronomer Owen Gingrich calls experiences like these questions without answers. He includes an example of his own. When Gingrich was 17, his only brother was killed by a car while delivering newspapers on his bike. Decades later, in one of the last entries in his diary, Gingrich's devout Mennonite father still agonized over why God would allow such a tragedy to befall his teenage son. Similarly, in his new book called The Language of God, Francis Collins, head of the Human Genome Project, writes about his daughter's rape 
and how it challenges his faith even today. Why did God not intervene to protect his daughter? Why was the perpetrator never caught and brought to justice? To take one more Job-like question with no answer, just this week my uncle emailed me to say that his son tried to end his life with pills and alcohol. Our world is neither purely good or evil, neither black or white, but black, white, and many shades of gray. Job's unjust suffering rightly troubles us, as does the Sago mine disaster. But just as mysterious are all the good things, like human altruism, our unimaginably vast, complex, and finely tuned universe that gave rise to intelligent life that can ask questions without answers. Human conscience in poignant beauty. In his poem called Peed Beauty, the English poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, who lived from 1844 to 1889, described our world as what he called dappled. Listen to his poem. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange. Whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how. With swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. According to Hopkins, we sense God's presence even, or especially, in what he calls the dappled things, things mottled as well as uniform, crooked as well as straight, sweet as well as sour, blemished as well as beautiful, surprising as well as predictable, and yes, in things painful as well as pleasurable. God does act in our imperfect irregular, dappled world, and in our frail personal lives too, says Gingrich, but not always in the most obvious ways to our blinkered vision. This became excruciatingly clear, says Gingrich, in Psalm 22 for this week, which centuries later Christians recounted from hearing from the parched, cracked lips of Jesus, who screamed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Psalm 22, verse 1. In that horrendous cry of dereliction, in some mysterious way, God was in Christ, reconciling the dappled cosmos to himself. Some people look at our dappled world and find little more than blind chance, 
In this view, humanity would seem to be an unimaginably lucky and glorious accident, resulting from 15 billion years of random events, and void of any transcendent meaning or purpose. But others follow Gerard Manley Hopkins, and amidst the dappled things see God's action in human history. Christians have long found genuine comfort in this notion of God's providential care. The Protestant reformer John Calvin described this loving providence in a wonderful passage. Listen to Calvin. When that light of divine providence has once shone upon a godly man, he is then relieved and set free, not only from the extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing him before, but from every care. For as he justly dreads fortune, so he fearlessly dares commit himself to God. His solace, I say, is to know that his heavenly Father so upholds all things in his power, so rules by his authority and will, so governs by his wisdom, that nothing can befall except he determine it. Whence, I pray you, do you have this never-failing assurance, but from knowing that, when the world appeals, appears to aimlessly tumble about, the Lord is everywhere at work, and from trusting that his work will be for your welfare. In short, not to tarry any longer over this, if you pay attention, you will easily perceive that ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. God, as Christians like Gingrich, Collins, and my uncle, and certainly the saints in Sago, West Virginia, understand him not as merely a cosmic other who flung the stars into space. God is not just a what but a who, a someone, not merely a something, a personal redeemer who loves us in what the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber called an I-thou relationship. The New Testament reading this week from Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 to 16 reminds us that in Jesus we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted and tried in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And now for further reflection. What might the French Nobel laureate André Guidé mean when he writes that, quote, joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness? Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation, end quote. Or consider Juliana of Norwich, the 14th century mystic. She writes, the greatest honor we can give Almighty God is to live gladly because of the knowledge of His love. Number three, 
Have you ever sensed the providence of God in what Hopkins calls the dappled things? And finally, what do you think is the ultimate message of the book of Job? For books this week, I review God's Universe by Owen Gingrich, Harvard University Press, 2006, 139 pages. Owen Gingrich, Emeritus Professor of Astronomy and the History of Science at Harvard University, was born in Washington, Iowa, to a devout Mennonite family. After graduating from Goshen College in Indiana, at age 21, he enrolled as a graduate student at Harvard. A leading authority on Johannes Kepler and Nicholas Copernicus, he even has an asteroid named in his honor, number 2658 Gingrich, and has preached in Washington's National Cathedral. In the opening pages of this book, Gingrich fondly recalls viewing the rings of Saturn through a simple telescope that his father helped him build from a mailing tube and leftover lenses from a local optometrist. Gingrich's book contains his three public lectures for Harvard's William Belden Noble Lectures in November 2005. And as Peter Gomes notes in his foreword, they're characterized throughout by their disarming understatement and their intellectual modesty. Gingrich argues that science deals with what Aristotle called efficient causes, that is, a description of how something happens, but not with final causes, an explanation of why something happens. At its best, then, science adopts a methodological naturalism as a research strategy, and it remains neutral about metaphysical or philosophical claims outside of its narrow purview. It's just wrong, writes Gingrich, to present evolution in high school as a final cause as it is to fob off intelligent design as a substitute for an efficacious, efficient cause. According to Gingrich, the cosmos in general, and the Earth in particular, with their complexity and fine-tuning, are remarkably congenial for humankind to flourish. Nor was humankind, with our complex language, altruism, conscience, creativity, self-consciousness, and abstract reasoning, necessarily inevitable. It would seem, then, that humankind is an unimaginably lucky and glorious accident, or perhaps part of a cosmological design, or telos. Science can inform one's thinking on the matter, but it cannot ultimately determine the answer. For Gingrich, a religious view of the universe makes more sense, explains more, and is more satisfying than a non-theistic view. He admits that this is hardly a proof, just a matter of personal persuasion, what the British physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne likes to call very similitude, or the ring of truth. Gingrich ends his book by quoting the prayer with which Johannes Kepler concluded his book, The Harmony of the World, from 1619. Johannes Kepler writes, If I have been enticed into brashness by the wonderful beauty of thy works, 
Or if I have loved my own glory among men, while advancing in work destined for thy glory, gently and mercifully pardon me. And finally, deign graciously to cause that these demonstrations may lead to thy glory and to the salvation of souls, and nowhere be an obstacle to that. Amen. Reading Gingrich's slender volume, which culminates a lifetime of dedication to robust Christian faith and rigorous world-class science, was a privilege that filled me with awe, admiration, and deep gratitude. Owen Gingrich, God's University, Harvard University Press, 2006. For film this week, I review Water, an Indian film from the year 2005. Set in 1938 India and Gandhi's rise to power, the film Water opens when Chuaya's father awakens her and asks, My child, do you remember getting married? She says no, and her father responds, Your husband is dead. You were a widow now. Chaya is eight years old, and as one of India's 34 million widows, her head is shaved, and she's banished for life to a home where Hindu widows live in penitence. They're a source of ritual impurity for anyone who touches them, or is even darkened by their shadow. But this does not stop the authoritarian and obese Didi who runs the home from pimping. Director-writer Deepa Mehta, who received death threats for her work and had to move filming to Sri Lanka, uses the little girl's plight as a window onto the larger degradation of widows by crafting a major subplot when a second widow, improbably gorgeous Kalyana, falls in love with the liberal-minded Brahmin and follower of Gandhi, Narayan. To divulge the twists and turns that their relationship take would spoil unexpected suspense. The marginalization of widows in Hindu society, remarks Narayan, is all about, quote, one less mouth to feed, four less saris, and a free corner in the house. It's disguised as religion, but it's all about money. In Hindi, with English subtitles, the film Water. And finally for this week, we've posted a very short poem, only four lines, by Christopher Harvey, who lived from 1597 to 1663. Christopher Harvey was an English poet and writer. These four lines come from the school of the heart. The whole round world is not enough to fill the heart's three corners, but it craveth still. None but the Trinity who made it can suffice the vast triangulated heart of man. Christopher Harvey, The School of the Heart. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 15th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.